You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Welcome to another episode of the TNA podcast. So we continue our discussion with Tom Bayer, one of the most decorated grassroots coach in the Asian region. In today's episode, we are also joined in by Shivan John from Malaysia. So Shivan kicks off the show in today's episode with a few questions of his own for Tom. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our discussion with Tom Bayer. Uh, but anyway, I was listening to Tom all the while. I think I can say that uh, you know his uh, word on grassroots football is pretty much like gospel for me to hear. So it's it's really uh, refreshing and eye-opening on a lot of things. And uh, as you were saying, Tom, I have to agree with everything what you're saying because I live in Malaysia and yeah. I think all the problems that you have highlighted is something that is happening right here in Malaysia as we speak. You know, we've been getting all these foreign experts to come here and, uh, you know, yeah. try to revamp our system, you know, and, uh, you know, try to uh, bring in all these sophisticated ideas and all that when all it's comes down to yep. is the basic element, which is whereby, right. as you mentioned, parents playing an important role on kids at the age of two to five, giving them the ball, letting them, you know, enjoy the ball before they can even enjoy the game. Uh, but what I wanted to ask you is, uh, as you mentioned about football culture, uh, do you think that it's also important for the football association, the football league to sort of like um, charter a plan or a program which will make professional football or making football as a career attractive enough for parents to finally realize that, you know, in order to be good at something, you know, it starts at home. Because as you know, in a country like Malaysia, uh, sports is still very much, I mean, we do excel in some sport on an international level. We do excel in football on a Southeast Asian level, but it's still not really, you know, the priority that parents put on their kids. You know, we still want our kids to become doctors, lawyers and engineers. And partly one of the main reasons, I think, is because, you know, the, the attractiveness in, in terms of the monetary rewards that come out of football isn't really there or, it, or in terms yeah. of the career path isn't really as um, guaranteeing as being a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. So do you think that, you know, the association, the football leagues, clubs, all at the, at the higher level need to play a role in making the game more attractive so that parents can say, look, you know, it's not all about being a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. You know, you can even be a professional footballer. You know, that's something that I can uh, want my kids to aspire to be. I mean, what's your take on yes. that? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that uh, I speak a lot about lately because I've put a lot of thought into it. Um, first of all, one of the great things of um, what I've been involved in lately is, and I think I mentioned it and you heard it, I was talking about Dr. John Rady from Harvard University. Um, so what, what, what I, what we've learned now is that first of all, and I didn't realize it because I couldn't understand and explain the science behind it, but it wasn't until I started having deeper conversations with Dr. John Rady, who again, foremost neuropsychiatrist from Harvard medical school, he literally travels the world talking about, uh, you know, uh, his work. Um, and when he started telling me, Tom, you don't understand what you figured out. And he said, listen, I don't really give a darn about developing football players, but he'd said what you're what you figured out and what you're doing is when a child by the age of three, four or five years old can actually master a skill, especially with their feet. 
he says you have no idea the ramification the the, the what that actually what boost that gives a child self-worth the the ability to believe in themselves which is all well-being being that amount of focus and discipline that a child is is going through when they're trying to master ball and here's the other one is that with we know we know now through the science that that basically what's happening is that when a child is playing with a, a ball and being encouraged to use the right foot and the left foot, they're activating different and they're building new neural pathways in the brain on the left and the right side of their brain. And why is that important? Because the brain is a muscle and there's a cognitive connection and a benefit to actually doing things with your feet and, for example, reading skills or mathematics skills. So they, they complement each other. So what I'm saying is, is that in Asia, especially in a country like Malaysia, Singapore, that part of the world, where parents look at football as a distraction or any sport as a distraction to education, I can sit and I've done it. I can stand in front of a, fan, a, 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 a room full of 700 parents, moms and dads, and I can tell them with the science that if you're limiting your child's physical activity or playing sports, you're putting them at a, at a disadvantage. Because we know now that even studies done in the NCAA in the United States, that the student athlete always performs their best during the sports season. They get their best grades. Okay, so that's one thing. Another very exciting program I'm involved in right now that I haven't spoken too much about but I'm working on a research program with professors from Stanford University and Dr. Rady from Harvard, where we're going to have a study group of a thousand children. Half of them will have football starts at home, half won't. And we're going to measure the cognitive benefits. We're going to measure their IQ. So there's certain things now that, and these are five-year-olds and there's, mm. and we're pretty sure that we know what that data is going to look like already. And that's going to have big, big ramifications for football development. So I'm always stunned that the football community hasn't figured out what we're working on, these kind of things. And the football world just hasn't caught up to what science knows already. That's the reality of it. And that happens with many new ideas. You know, any, any new concepts that come out, people are very slow to adapt. But we're doing some, you know, groundbreaking research that I think could actually change football development for the better. And also just being able to, you know, engage parents and show them that kids need to be more physically active, especially in this day and age where, you know, we've got child obesity, we've got coronary disease, we've got child diabetes. It's in everybody's interest, whether it's the government, whether it's families, whether it's educators, whether it's the workforce, we all need to be conscious of the fact that kids need more activity. And it just so happens that it's football that we're pushing. But that's the reality. And, and to answer your question, this is what if I'm a football federation or I'm the Malaysian FA or the, you know, I know that you guys have your the NFDP, I think it's called National Football Development Program, yeah. or whether it's mm. the government or the FA or the professionals, I would be screaming this with a big megaphone as loud as I can everywhere. But they're silent. Nobody says anything. So I think one of the problems is, is actually trying to to kind of brainwash people or or at least give that message that, yeah, your kid's going to become a professional and is going to go on and make millions of dollars. Yeah, that might happen. 
But the reality is that's not why we should be pushing football development for kids. It should be better lifestyle, better health outcomes, better education outcomes, better future. I mean, there's just so many positives that come out of sports and playing team sports in specific, you know, and football's a team sport. Um, and so to answer your question, yeah, I, I think that Malaysia or Australia, wherever you are, those countries need to be taking the lead. But again, like I said, because I've worked with some of these, I've worked with many federations, the politics are exhausting, very, very exhausting. And I'm not so sure that some of the big solutions for football are going to actually come from the football community. I think they might come from people. You got to realize that a lot of these federations and associations, mm. they're, 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 they're not so flexible. They're, they're, they're not innovators. They're not risk takers, mm. you know? Those risk takers and innovators come from different parts of uh, of of of, um, of society. Um, so you know, I, I'm I'm not really so optimistic about football federations taking the lead doing this. Now, I said a little bit earlier, I, I like working with professional teams because I'm working with the professional team right now, the Houston Dynamo and the MLS. And when you work with a professional team, they're much more they're much more community orientated. They're much more connected or they want to be connected to the community, okay? They're very interested in raising the level at the entry level because they're looking for the elite players to put in their academies, okay? Mm. They're looking for connections. And also the professionals, at least in America, uh, the teams are run by very, very well-educated, uh, uh, very intellectual uh, – I mean, you've got guys – with you know, that are lawyers, they're accountants, they're PhDs, they're MBAs. I mean, and and they've got they've they're set up for it because professional clubs have a communications PR department officer. They've got a marketing guy. They got a community guy. They or girl or or what have you. But they've got all the different. So when I go to Houston, for example, I'll give you I'll give you a typical trip for me to Houston. I'm going to be doing one between August 23rd and September 2nd. Last time I went there, every single day I'm on some kind of live TV show or on a radio show broadcast. I'm given the whole spiel, the whole football starts at home. What is it? Why are we doing? What are we doing? When are we doing it? Who are we doing it with? I'm there. I'm meeting with the local clubs. I'm meeting with the the key stakeholders in the community who are running all of the local grassroots teams there and the leagues and the competition. I'm there going into public schools with the professional club where they're talking to different brands. They've got me paraded out onto the pregame show live broadcast when Houston played DC United with Wayne Rooney. I'm, I'm going out onto the center circle at halftime with a microphone and being interviewed about what is football starts at home. So it's a, it's a, it's a process. It's a, you know, we're designing a program based on the resources that we have available to us. And this can be done anywhere. This can mm. be done anywhere, but first you have to identify and, and realize or, or accept or want to use this as a strategy for, for, for many different things. And I always kind of joke around and say, you know, the problem is that most people don't know what the problem is. That's the problem. So they're trying, you've got people trying to solve solutions um, or come up with solutions, solve problems, and they just don't, they've got their ladder on the wrong wall. They're looking in the wrong places. Um, and again, it just comes down very simply, you know, can you get, can you get, can you obsess with kids that, you know, are, 
or four, five, six, seven, and these kids just become real, real technical masters of the ball, and then just hand them off to the clubs. Because I'm telling you, I've seen it with my own kids here. My two boys, who are very good technically, when they crossed over the line into organized play here into Japan, they were mm. they were technically better than the rest of the kids. And mm. I can tell you, in no disrespect, but my son's team's coaches are not experienced. They're just fathers. Mm. And so I, I know here's the formula. If a kid crosses over the line and they've got the ball mastery down, you know, coupled with paired off with the inexperienced coach, that kid always develops. That kid always develops. It's the kid that, and then I've seen also kids that cross over the line in organized play that have absolutely no foundation and they're paired with a really, really good experienced coach. That kid doesn't develop. Mm. So, I mean, come on. That's why I keep saying, you know, I know what I know because I've seen it. I've, 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 I've worked in it. I've lived it. And, you know, people can talk about it, theorize about it. Um, and, you know, come back from, you know, getting all your coaching licenses. But if you haven't rolled up the sleeves and you've been out on a pitch with, you know, 25 little six-year-olds or eight-year-olds or 10-year-olds, I mean, I did this for 20 years. So, and I'm talking about Japan where, where the, the, the technical standard is quite high. It's the gold bar standard in Asia here yeah. in Japan, technically wise, right? And there's lots and lots of places here, even in Japan, where they don't get it right, you know, but they have enough. You know, there's a, listen to the numbers. There's only 270,000 kids registered in the JFA for kids under the age of 12. 270,000. That's tiny. That's <laughs> In China, we got 120 million kids under the age of six. You know? Oh. And in Japan here, we've got seven, a little under 7 million children under the age of six years old. But there's only 270,000 kids. And in the women's side, and Japan's an outlier, man. This is like a freak of nature. People should be running over to Japan to see what's happening with the women because mm. it's the only country in the world where we've won every single FIFA tournament. We won them all. We won the seniors. We won the under-20s. And we won the under-17 World Cup, all three of them. And that's oh. only from 2011. So in the space of eight years, we've won all three World Cup tournaments. Yeah. And here's the, here's the killer. Here's the number for this. In all of Japan, between the ages of six and 40, there's only 50,000 people who play, girls, mm. okay? And then if you break it down even more, girls-only teams, I'm talking girls-only teams, there's only 255 in all of Japan, under 12. Now, they play with the boys, and that's a whole other conversation. There's lots to play there. But you're talking about an outlier country, and why are the girls so good? Two reasons. Unbelievably good technically, and it's a possession-based style of game. And I hate to say this because I know all the coaches that coach the women's team and especially the woman who, who won the World Cup, uh, Costa Rica, um, Takakura Asako. She used to work with me for a few years. Mm. Very lovely woman, but very little experience coaching. But she goes into the World Cup in Costa Rica with the Japan under-17 team. She wins the World Cup. They score 23 goals, four, and they allow only one. Wow. Wow. And 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 what I would say is, is that again, no disrespect to her, I love her like a sister, but I have a pretty good feeling that probably just about anybody that went on that team would get the same result. Because what happened was, is that after that, that next cycle, they hired somebody else to become the women's head coach of the under seventeen national team. Okay, a mm -hmm. guy who I had never heard of. I had to research when I asked. I even called to the JFA, my friend who works in the women's department. I said, who's this guy? Why, how did he wind up being the under-17 World Cup? So, well, we wanted a woman, but we only have four with the pro license, and the other three weren't available. 
So mm. because the old the other coach had been bumped up to the senior one. So you get a guy, a guy who's got absolutely no experience coaching women first, no experience as a head coach. Yeah. And he also goes to the final of the World Cup and they score like, you know, 21 goals and allow like two or three. Mm. So so what happens is, is that when you've got at the very youngest ages, when you've got the technical component correct, that's on autopilot. That'll win almost every time. Mm. Where it falls off is that when you get older, like if you look at the American team that just kind of plowed through everybody, right? Yeah. You look at them. It, it's not that they're really so good technically, but the athleticism, the strength, the speed, the power, the psychological kind of you know strength and determination of that American. We're number one, you know. So it's a mm. it's a it's different when you get to the top level, but. The technical part has gotten Japan three World Cup championships, you know, yeah. which is extraordinary. Yeah. Happy with that, Shivan. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Do you have time for another question? I, I got all the time you want. No problem. My kids are in bed. It's a summer <laughs> okay. holiday, so uh, no sweat. Okay. Uh, well, just just to, just to share this with you, Tom. Um, I, I mean, I followed you on Twitter here and there, but I think... It was only when I saw the video on uh, Japanese football on Copa 90 where I truly, truly understood exactly uh, what is it that you're doing in football. Uh, sure. uh, of course, you know, they did touch upon, you know, as also you mentioned earlier in the show, the perfect storm, uh, one yeah. of which is your involvement in Japanese football. And of course, with the, the GFA launching the J-League and also their bid for the 2002 World Cup. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. Why wasn't there any mention on Japan's 1992 Asian Cup win? Because I kind of felt that maybe that too could have played a part in Japan's realization that, you know, there is something potential in football and that they can go big from this. Uh, is there any reason that that wasn't really uh, mentioned as part of the perfect storm? Yeah, I mean, it, maybe you mean like on the Copa 90 uh, special that you watched? Yes, yeah, well, I mean, again, you know, I mean, I wasn't the producer of that. I was just, you know, a piece of it, right? They go, they do their own research and what they want to do. And, you know, a lot of times these foreign entities or these broadcasters or media come over and um, and they, they they can't really piece all the pu put all the pieces of the puzzle together, right? I think they get, they get you know, it, depending upon where they land. For example, again, not to pat myself on the back, but I get a lot of media people come to me. And if they come to me, then I'm able to kind of turn them on to different stories or at least give some pieces of the puzzle that they might want to look into. But I think it's just a lack of understanding on the media side of not knowing. Um, I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. That's a, that's a very big piece of it as well. And, and it's interesting. Maybe people don't know, but that was the first time that, that Japan had ever won the Asian cup. And it was the first time that they ever did anything with a foreign coach, Hans Oft, who was a Dutchman who was the first ever non-Japanese hire of the national team. Um, and that was his great achievement, was winning the Asian Cup in 92. And then if you know the whole, that nightmare of what they call the, the nightmare in Doha. Yeah, uh, Qatar, yeah, where they lost the game there. It was just one of those freaks of, of you know, football. Um, they were just seconds away from participating in the 94 World Cup. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that was a, that was a big, a big part of it. I mean, 
and and I'm not here to say that you know Tom Beyer being in Japan is the reason that Japan is doing as good as they are because it's not the reason. But <laughs> I know that we I know that we've we've played a very big role. That's for sure, especially in the grassroots part um, of helping to identify, convince, and put programs in place um, that focused around the technical development. I, I know that because I'm I'm I, I live here. Um, and I, so, and I socialize and I, I know these people who run the JFA and I know the appreciation they have. I mean, the chairman of the JFA, his two boys who are professionals, they, they both came through our schools, you know, when they were small, when they were small kids. Um, and you know, I've got the, the former head coach, the most successful coach in the history of Japan, Okada Takeshi, um, who wrote the piece on the back of my book, um, telling, you know, the world that, uh, that there's something interesting that 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 people should take a look at when it comes to this football starts at home. So you know, there's there's many moving parts. Um, there's there's not just one. Um, there's lots. You know, the J League coming into existence in '93. You're right, the '92 winning the uh, Asian Cup, but '93. But I think the big big thing was is that when Japan got awarded the World Cup and the J League starting in '93, um, them getting knocked out at '94, the way that it happened. Um, similar to like me sitting on my sofa at five o'clock in the morning last summer watching Japan versus Belgium and then that catastrophe where we thought we knocked Belgium out um, or, you know, and, 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 ba- and basically, you know, the rest is history, right? But I yeah. think what happens is, is that when you, when you have those moments in football, that that can also be a positive drive into making people fall in love even more with the game and appreciate it more. Um, when you have those kind of, you know, those huge kind of crises or, or tragedies, if you want to call it where you you know, you think you've got a game in the bag and then you wind up losing it. I think it, I think we, you know, made people love the game even more, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, you can always do better when you're doing these specials and reporting on things, but a lot of people, especially the foreign media, it's hard to get information and understand Japan unless you're doing it in turn. There's a lot of good foreign journalists here, a lot of good football journalists in Japan here that have been here, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, but, you know, I get your point. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, um, the four most populated country in the world, you have uh, India, China, United States of America, and Indonesia. Among yep. these four countries... I would say probably the U.S. is only the most consistent country that has made it to the World Cup. Uh, of course, That's right. Indonesia did make it back in the 1930s when they were part of the Dutch colonials, but that was a long time yep. ago. Uh, yes. The surprising thing is that among these four countries, I, I would say, that has a very strong football culture, I would say is Indonesia. I mean, their passion for the game yes. is, uh, is on top of the world. Yes. But what is the problem in that country that, you know, I mean, when you talk about fan culture, it's right on top of the world. But when you talk about football culture, as in the, the, the results on the field, it's it's a different side of the spectrum. What's actually the problem in that country? I mean, if there's anything that you know that you might want to share. Yeah, sure. I've actually done quite a bit of work down in Indonesia um, over the years. Um, I've worked with the Federation. I've worked with some of the key people. Here's my Here's my kind of twist on Indonesia. Indonesia, the Indonesian country is 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 probably the sleeping giant of of Southeast Asia. I, I kind of almost call them the Brazil of Southeast Asia, potential wise, right? 
but they're also the poster country of why FIFA is so adamant about keeping government out of football. Um, so Indonesia football is just unbelievably politicized. Um, so you have to kind of know a little bit about the history of what's happening. But there's a couple of feuding factions in Indonesia that use football as a, a political football, excuse the pun. Um, so a lot of things just don't happen. They're not very organized. Um, there's, um, I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of corruption. Uh, there's a lot of waste. Um, there's just a lot of things that aren't happening. There's very lack of competition that goes on. Um, their training methods, their facilities, um, just everything is just non-conducive to developing players. Um, and it's a real shame because they could be, I mean, there's no doubt about it. They're out of all of the 47 member associations in, in Asia, probably Indonesia could be classified as the number one footballing country, but they just can't get their act together. Um, they've got, they've had over the years competing leagues. They've had, you know, I mean, it's just, it's like a comedy of errors, you know, like just year after year. They've been banned from FIFA a couple times. They've been on the brink of being banned by FIFA several times. So they're just in chaos. It's just like a free fall. And I'm not sure really how they recover from that. Um, but, you know, that's kind of my take on it. Um, I think if they purely focused at the grassroots level, that's a country that if I was in charge of Indonesian football, I would put my stake in the ground. And I'd say, we want to win the under-17 World Cup in the next 10 years, okay? Mm. And what that would do is that would put the focus on today's five-year-olds, yeah. okay? And that's not just Indonesia. That's Malaysia. That's China. That's any country that's trying to develop. Instead of trying to race and, you know, get a giant leap to playing in the World Cup, because Malaysia... Thailand, Sing, all these countries in Southeast, they're not going to play in a senior World Cup unless they start really making some noise at the bottom rung, right? Mm. And so what I would say is, you know, come out, make a statement, the government, 10-year plan, maybe not even to win a World Cup, but to be in the top four. But you know what? That's actually doable. You know why? And it's believable. So it's something that you can get a country behind. The people can get behind it. The government can get behind it. The media can get behind it. Brands can get behind it because it's a little bit more believable. Why? Because the, the criteria for getting into the under-17 World Cup is much lower than it is getting into the senior. And you've got a two-year, every two years, the World Cup is going on. So every year you're in a cycle. Yeah. So you've got lots of opportunities to try. You've got mm. five chances in 10 years to try. And again, like I said, if President Xi Ping in China had come out and said, I want to win the under-17 World Cup in 10 years or 15 years. You know what happened? Instead of all those billionaires buying $50 million players for the Chinese Super League, they'd be investing in the five- and six-year-olds today. Yeah. And that would make a massive difference. But again, just vision. People don't understand it. They don't understand development. So they think that you got to bring Marcelo Lippi over for 20 million euro a year. He's been there for eight years. He's going home with a couple hundred million dollars in his pocket. Great coach. No disrespect to him, but he's the wrong guy. That's not what the problem is. You know, it's like it's like bringing in the surgeon to help the kid that's got the 
you know, the mosquito bite, you know, I mean, it just doesn't make sense, but that's the way it is. And it's big business. And there's a lot of people making money off football as well. So we've got some, you know, things that are just out of control and uh, lack of understanding. But, um, I mean, you know, we've got, we've got 4 billion people in Asia. We've got, you know, the, the youngest, uh, population in the world. We've got 120 million kids under the age of six in, in China, a hundred million under the age of six in India. We've got millions and millions of kids in Southeast Asia, but all the money's going at the top. The few kids come to our schools for once a week. So even Doan Litsu and um, Minamino, who came to our schools since they were six, they only came once a week for an hour. So yeah, I mean, we help, we facilitate, we make them better, but we're not the end all. I mean, there's lots of other things going on. Um, they play on club teams, the role that parents play, the role that discipline and organization plays in Japan here. Um, so that's a lot of different things. You know, the, the other thing in Japan is, is that there's no real big cost barrier for entering into play here. It doesn't really cost anything. In America, in Australia, it'll cost you a couple of thousand dollars to play, for a kid to play on a decent team. A couple of thousand dollars. I'm not talking a thousand. I'm talking sometimes four to five thousand dollars for a kid to play on what they call a travel team or an elite team or, a, or what they call in America DAs, which are developmental academy teams. In Japan, you know how much it costs my kid to play for a year? About $150. And that's four four times a week, two and a half hours a session, 52 weeks a year. You just buy the uniform. That's it. But that's because it's a different culture. That's a different culture because it's a very community-oriented kind of, you know, that's the way that kids kids play sports here. My kid doesn't – we don't have to get on a car and drive hours or in America. You got kids getting on airplanes to fly down to Florida from North Carolina or New York to play in a tournament. They have to pay their own way down there. These are 12, 13-year-old kids. Yeah. Okay? So, I mean, you know, it's just there's, there's, there's lots of different things. So in Japan, it's a small island, 120 million people. Everything's very close, community. My kids walk out of the front door of my house right here where I'm sitting in my living room. They walk five minutes and they're at school. That's where mm. they practice. That's where they train. That's where they play their games. They play in the neighborhood around here. And that's it, you know? And so it's a different uh, different culture. That's why you have to adapt. You have to, you know, me as a foreigner coming here, I can't, I don't come into Japan and tell the Japanese how to do this or that. Yeah. I got to adapt and try to figure out how to survive, you know? And so I got to change my way of thinking and uh, think, okay, well, with my knowledge, my experience, how can I help a country that's got this and that? Um, and how can I add to that? Um, so that's it. Mm. That was good. <laughs> a lot of insights there. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I feel like, I, you know, when you get older, I'm in my late 50s. And when you get older, you tend to think like you've got more yesterdays and tomorrows. But I still feel like I've got more tomorrows and yesterdays. Because the amount of experience and knowledge that I've accumulated and now plus adding this whole kind of new concept of football starts at home. So if you look at the progression, there's basically three stages of my career that I went through. First, I went through, at least on the coaching side, not my playing, but on the coaching post-playing career, I focused on kids just going around doing these huge events, trying to empower children to practice on their own technical skills. 
Then I went through a phase of, you know, focusing on coaches as well, coaches education. And now I'm getting the full circle coming around. It's the parents. It's the parents. Mm. And I know now because I've seen kids that are phenomenal players because they're parents and they never played before, but they kind of knew what to do with their kids and they've done tremendous job. So I know that you don't have to put your little, you know, your, your little, you, you've got a child who's three, four, five, six. If you can facilitate that love affair between the child and the ball, that's all you can hope for. And then pass them off to the coach or just even an organizer or a parent that doesn't really have any coaching skills, but could just organize and put on a decent training session. The kid's going to do well. The kid's going to do well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pretty much one last question from me, Tom. Um, sure. Uh, as you mentioned just now, these two Wonder Kid players, Wonder Boys, who are now currently attached to European clubs. Uh, yep. One needs to go back 20 years ago or even 30 years ago when there's hardly any Japanese football players who are playing in Europe. And yep. I, I keep mentioning to people, you know, how important it is that when Nakata made the transition from J-League to Syria R and he made it workable for himself because it sort of like opened the door for European clubs to actually see that, realize that, you know, that you know, Japan, there is a market there where you are, you're able to buy raw talent, probably not much of a premium price. Uh, if I can remember in the, in the 90s, yeah. you know, the, 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 the football environment in Europe at that time is that if you want a raw talent, you go to Sweden, you go to Norway, but, you know, the price was pretty much escalating. But in Japan, you can actually buy a talented football player uh, who is ready made to play, you know, at a top flight in European in, in a European league, provided if the chance is given, uh, you know, at a very reasonable price. So how important yep. it was for Nakata to really make that transition that sort of like open the floodgates because now nowadays it seems like you know you you find Japanese football players in almost not just in the top five football leagues but I would say probably you know maybe 60-70 percent in Europe you know even the, the the lesser well-known Japanese football players you know you can find them playing in uh, lesser known leagues like you know those Eastern European football leagues for that matter so yeah how, how important that move from Hidetoshi Nakata I think it was big I mean a lot of people that don't know Japanese football think that Nakata was the first. We actually had a few other players that did very, very well. That played in Germany. Okudera is one. Oh player. yes, I remember him. Yeah. Sorry. And then there was, there was another. That's right. And then there was another player called Kazama that oh, went okay. there. Um, we also had Murakazu who went to Genoa. The problem with Genoa was that his first game versus AC Milan, he broke his nose. Bereshi. Oh hit him in the nose and broke his nose or so I, that's not a very good way to start your career in Italy. Um, or else Kazu might've done a lot better than he did. He was a bit, I think he was seen as a kind of a, a failure there. Um, mm. and, but Nakata went there and Nakata did do well. Um, and I think in his opening game or maybe one of the games he's, he scored a spectacular, I think it was a volley kick or an overhead kick against Juventus. And I was actually watching that game on live TV. It's kind of similar like in baseball when the Hideo Nomo went to the Los Angeles uh, Angels, uh, Los Angeles uh, Dodgers, I'm sorry, and uh, and played very well. And it, it, it grabbed the attention, you know. I mean, Nakata did do very well, but, you know, he bounced around at a lot of different teams. He played at Perugia. He played at Roma. He played at, uh, I believe, Parma. Um, then he wound up going over to Bolton 
and then he was basically finished. But um, yeah, I mean, it's always when you're a pioneer and you're you're the first or like one of the first. Um, obviously, that's a that's a big step, right? But now you're right. We've got we've got a floodgate, and uh, not just a floodgate, but we've got kids uh, that are playing for Real Madrid and Barcelona, mm. um, which is which is unbelievable, right? And when you look <laughs> yeah. at the when you look at the boy that went to to Real Madrid, Takefusa Kubo. It was interesting because they just had a new, maybe you saw it was viral. It went around Twitter. There was a practice session where he's playing a mini game and he's playing with the top team. There's a kid that just turned 18 and he's playing with the top team. Um, and he's like dribbling around Marcelo. He's like, you know, I mean, he's just, you know, he's not just holding his own. He's actually impressing people. And afterwards, um, Spanish uh, TV was following him around, put a microphone in his face and, and said to him, wow, those technical skills, 1v1 skills are, are amazing. How did you learn them? And he said, my father. My father taught me everything. That was the exact translation that it, it said. And then they said, well, when did your dad start teaching you? When I was two and three years old. Wow. So again, you know, <laughs> circling back here towards the end of the conversation, that's why I'm so passionate and adamant about this whole football starts at home thing because when you look at that, remember, I'm talking the best of the best. I'm not talking about just the average professional. I'm talking about the best of the best. Mm -hmm. And when you uncover and you look behind the curtain and you know what you're looking for, it hits you like a sledgehammer every single time, whether it's Hazard, Modric, Lewandowski, Kane, Cruz, Iniesta, uh, Neymar, Ronaldo, Pele, uh, Beckenbauer, George Best, Johan Cruyff, all of them, all of them, all started very young kids at home in the role that the father, David Beckham as well. I mean, it's just, it's endless, the amount of players of, of the re relationship between child and parent. So, you know, if you're listening out there and you want to try to figure out, okay, well, how can your country get ahead? Um, how can you make, take that giant leap forward um, it's about the parents. It's about the parents and a country that goes with a strategy of engaging and educating parents of very small children are going to do some amazing things in football. And the best news is it doesn't cost a dime. It doesn't cost mm. a penny. It's just a knowledge transfer. It's just creating a culture. It doesn't yeah. cost anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting to uh, interesting to see that El Clasico now has a Japanese twist to it. I mean, it's always been the traditional footballing nation, but if Japan has, you know, has now going to play a huge factor, it says a lot about how far Japanese football has come, in my opinion. Um, yeah. So, Shankar, you have you have anything to ask? Yeah, I have a couple of things, um, <laughs> and then we'll round it up, Tom. Um, sure, that's right. Yeah. So you did mention about the. Uh, parents' role in uh, developing the talent right from a young age, didn't you? So yeah. uh, I was just wondering, These there are these countries, um, I could even say Australia, I'm not, because I've not been to Malaysia much or to Japan, so I know in, in how it is in India and how it is in Australia. So uh, there are these, you know, the minor communities or uh, the communities that have uh, difficulties uh, get reaching those facilities or maybe they don't have the uh, income to put their kid into such a facility. So uh, they might be following the game. They might be really interested. They might want the, their kid to be part of it. But um, 
the circumstances don't allow them. So what can those kind of people uh, do to engage their kids in these kind of programs? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, well, again, it depends on the ages. You know, there are barriers in Australia and in America to actually playing. You have to have money to play in a lot of these teams, right? Yeah. Or depending on what level. But if you want to climb the elite uh, uh, part in America and in Australia, it's a pay-to-play model. That's the reality of it, right? Yeah. But what we're talking about, you know, okay, that's one problem that we can't, you know, I, I can't, that's out of my control. But what yeah. I can help to control and influence is, the role that parents will play with their young child before they even enter into playing. And, yeah. and that's, that's the killer. That's, that's the part that I'm the most interested in because there's lots of things that, that parents can do to help out um, by facilitating, first of all, small ball, small foot, small kid, right? Mm. Don't give the kid a, a size five ball or a three, four, five size ball. That's, you know, three, four, five years starting out uh, the entry level ensure that it's not just going out and kicking and shooting. When you go around to most countries in the world, most parks around the world, you'll find them filled with kids and parents and they're just hoofing the ball back and forth kicking. So, you know, just these little tiny kind of, you know, uh, understandings uh, and knowledge for parents are key. Teach a child from a very, very young age to protect the ball. What do we mean by that? Well, get them into the habit of pulling the ball back, right foot, left foot, using the sole of their feet. You know, set up a practice, play a little game with your child, give them the ball, and then parent lunges at the player, and then basically they just pull it back and it's my ball. So that you're starting to put in their consciousness and basically conditioning them that it's my ball, you can't have it. You know, mm. um, lots of things you can do inside the house, outside the house. Um, there's just tons and tons of stuff that you can do. Um, but it's just really trying to facilitate um, the ball as the centerpiece of development and ensuring that the child is having fun and make it the favorite toy. I set up my house to the environment so that my kids were just constantly around these little balls and I was showing them things to do. I was modeling it. I was just like pulling the ball back. The ball would glide, hit the sofa, hit the wall. I'd go and I'd pull it back with my left foot. So I was just trying to show and, and alternate right foot, left foot, playing little games with them. And then, you know, we've got, we've got, I've got a study group going on right now in Australia. I look at it every single day. We have a WhatsApp uh, account, and mm -hmm. we've got several Australian families that have five-year-olds, and every single day they're uploading videos of football starts at home inside their house with a small ball. Ah. We give them certain lessons, and they're doing it, and I'm watching it. I'm watching it every single day. It goes for 15 weeks. It's called, We call it the 15-week challenge. Mm -hmm. And when you see the results, it's irrefutable, man. I mean, when you see from day one, we show you, I've got the videos from day one. We give them, the parents, exactly what to do. We show them what kind of exercises to do. And then they have to video their kids doing it and practicing it. And you can see from week one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way to 15. And when you see from one to 15, you'd be shocked when you see the difference. When you see what can be facilitated in just 15 weeks yeah. of just effort of a parent putting a little effort into you know, we tell them exactly what to do, and then they do it. And so we've got that a similar program in the United States. I just got done doing it with 10 families, a 15-week uh, project on, a, on Facebook, a closed Facebook group. Um, mm. So, you know, we these aren't things that we're, you know, this isn't something that, you know, we read in a book or I found it in a coaching program or something. No, we figured this out, and we've got outcomes now. We've got evidence-based 
work that we can show that we show that what we're doing and what we're what we're we're uh, we're asking families to do, it actually works. You can mm. see it, and then you we've also got videos of the kids from Australia and America playing in games, and you can just see these kids are head and shoulders above all the other kids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this isn't this isn't this isn't rocket science. Yeah, you know, exactly. it, just, yeah. it is. It, it it isn't rocket science, but then again, I guess kind of maybe it is because nobody's really kind of you know figure figuring it out. Um, so you know, we're the ones that are trying to at least take the lead on it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, one last thing. Uh, sure. This is this is just to take a light moment of uh, our conversation about hour and a half. So. What was your most memorable moment in your career developing talents all these years, like all the, throughout these years? Um, I'd have to say, you know, some of the, I mean, I've been very fortunate. I've done some huge events around the world, um, you know, with players like Zinedine Zidane or David Beckham or Paul Pogba or, you know, I've, uh, I was the host of the 2002 World Cup Golden Ball and Golden Boot Award. I was the MC with Carlos Alberto Pereira, Emma Jacquet, and Franz Beckenbauer, three World Cup champions, you know, for worldwide media in front of 500 media. I've been very lucky to do a lot of stuff, you know, so I can't really kind of put my finger on it. I mean, I'm just as proud of all the players that never become professionals as the ones that have become professionals. Mm. I mean, I would say probably one of my proudest moments. Yeah, here's a good one for you. Was 2011 watching the Women's World Cup final and against the US, which is my country, right? Yeah. And I'm in Japan in my home. Yeah. Um and watching that game um and watching Aya Miyama um mm. score the tying goal for the World Cup to to put it into um into overtime, I think it might have been. Yeah. And Aya, the reason I say Aya is because I've worked with Aya since she's 10 years old. Mm. Um, and I and I have made a DVD together. I put Aya on my TV show for a year. So I have a special relationship with her. So that's when I sat back and I literally had tears and rolling down my eyes. I was watching the game. I think it was on like crazy time at like three in the morning and I was crying and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, this was worth it. I've been here for, you know, uh, you know, close to 30 years now left my family to come to Japan and a moment like this is just golden, especially yeah. it's like, kind of just bitter. it's just, it's just bittersweet because it's against my country too, us. Yeah. So here I am in a small way, you know, I'm a little bit of a part of this, this unbelievable history of the mm. Japanese women winning, um, the world cup. And, uh, and I, uh, I think she scored also one of the penalties as well. So, that was probably the biggest highlight I'd say of, or at least the connection of like, you know, me thinking, all right, well, this is, this is a big special moment for me. Okay. All right. Um, so thanks for your time, Tom. That was a really, a really good, um, really good conversation. A really yeah, good no insights into uh, grassroots and development. Uh, Shibin, do you want to say something before we wind up or let's wind up? I uh, just want to say uh, thank you, Tom, for taking uh, your time to be able to talk to us. And uh, of course, you know, I can say that uh, there's so much that I've learned from you. I only wish that, uh, you know, if the people are really involved in football, 
would take also the same time and listen to you what you have to say. And I think uh, it will really help project, you know, the football development, especially in Asia, where I think there is a sense of realization now, for, especially on a fan level basis, that everybody wants to see their country playing at the World Cup, playing at the highest level. But it's only because the, the people, the stakeholders in football aren't doing the right thing to make this uh, dream a realization. And uh, if only they listen well, to you, probably, you know, maybe in 10, 20, 30 years from now, you know, a lot of dreams, especially among the fans, can really come true. So I just want to say thank you for sharing all this insight with us. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because, um, I mean, I, I always say that it, it, it's, how can I even kind of put it? You know, federations, when things go wrong, they probably get a little bit too much of the blame. And when things go right, they get a little bit too much of the credit, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. But I think it's also, it's a lack of understanding of why a federation exists. What's their responsibilities? What do they do? What's the influence of, uh, influential sphere that they have? But, you know, it's not just the FAs, you know. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what. Almost all of the work that I did in Japan had absolutely nothing to do with the FA originally or the professionals. Mm. Um, a lot of it was done with private uh, business. Um, you know, I found an investor to invest in opening these schools. I was casted on TV, so that's a broadcaster. I worked with different brands and sponsors, Nestle, Adidas, um, who paid the bills to, you know, build some of the strategies we have. So... You know that's that's the that's that's the reality of it. You know, I mean, it, the, the the problem is is that again, you know, I said it twice now, but the problem is most people don't know what the problem is. Mm -hmm. So that's what the problem is, right? Because they think that it's uh, you have to invest in the overseas specialists. So Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, India, Thailand, Vietnam, Australia. All of them, all of them have foreign experts, usually in the technical director's positions, yeah. all of them. But guess who doesn't have it? Japan. None. Zero. So not to say that foreigners aren't important, but they've, they've maintained that kind of cultural integrity of, you know, basically studying from the world's best and taking a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from over here and basically trying to adapt it to the Japanese way. But there's never been any technical director or coach head of edu coaches education, or especially in the national team. Other than the senior team, you'll never see a, a, a foreign coach coaching a, a national team in Japan other than the top team occasionally. But even there, I think that uh, it, it, this is going to be a big World Cup coming up next time. If, the Japan, if Japan does very, very well in this World Cup, I mean, basically, there's the, the the science and the data shows that Japan only performs well with Japanese coaches. That's mm. it. That's the reality of it, right? So, you know, I wouldn't give up the ship right away. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's it, you guys are doing a a very good job and role of you know trying to gather information. People like myself and other people on your podcasts, um, but it's it's really trying to get in, getting into the right room with the right people. You know, yeah. uh, that's what I always say. It's, 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 you know, sometimes I hate to say this. I don't know. If, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this terminology, but if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're the, you're in the wrong room. Yeah. Right. 
and so so that happens often, right? And not to say that I'm a genius, but I go in and because I've, I'm pretty skilled at this, I've been around for so many years. I'm I'm sitting in the room with FAs and you know presidents and blah 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 blah. And again, you know, it's just you can see the disconnect. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate because I've also sat in the in the uh, in the in the offices of IACS, or I've been asked to present to you know Mauricio Pochettino from Tottenham Hotspurs, or I've been invited to the Croatian FA to pitch to the you know the technical director Romeo Jozak, or been in front of you know down in Malaysia. I was invited by the NFDP, and I was uh, presented. Um, at a presentation in the front row, I had Bern Stober, Stober, the uh, Stober, the head of German coaches' education. After they just came off winning the World Cup in mm. in uh, in Brazil, I think it was uh, in uh, in Brazil. Yeah, Brazil. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I've um, I've got a lot of experience, and I've been put in front of the firing line, so to speak. Right. So I see the reaction I get from people. I see kind of where there's a misunderstanding. I see where there's gaps that aren't filled in. You know, the biggest thing is, is that when people see like a six or seven year old, who's really, really good, they think like lightning is struck in a bottle. They don't Mm -hmm. understand it, but there's always a reason why, you know, there's, there's, there's a reason why Eden Hazard is as good as he is. Why? Okay. Cause his three brothers are professional players. His mother was a professional player and his father was a professional player. There's a reason Neymar became this incredible athlete and this incredible dribbler because his dad went back to school, studied physical education and kinesiology. He moved the furniture around in the living room so that his kid could dribble around the furniture. There's a reason Paul Polk was as good as he is because when his his dad went around the neighborhood coaching all the other kids so that Paul would have good competition when he grew up. I mean, it's just stories like this. But nobody knows what to look for, so they always look at, oh, why is Iniesta so good? Oh, because he wound up at La Masia at the Barcelona Academy. Oh, that's why he's good. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's silly. And but people people fall for it, you know. They see it and they don't understand it. So this is a reason why football at the top end, you've got administrators and they buy into this. So they think, okay, well, hold on. So if Barcelona's producing Messi and Iniesta, Xabi, blah, 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 then we better to go find out a guy that used to work there and bring him to Malaysia. Yeah. Or bring him to China. Or bring, yeah, so – and it just doesn't work that way. But, you know, administrators don't know that, and they realize that they've got money to spend, but they've got to spend it on a big-name brand. So on paper, at least it looks like it should work, right? But it often yeah. doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so th- that is one thing we actually uh, – uh, like you said, uh, we want to do like create the awareness like by talking to people like yourself and uh, so who actually have been there and has done it. So uh, yeah. all we can say is thank you for your time, Tom. Uh, no, no, it's really, always I really. love. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I always love. Uh, I always love discussing uh, football development, no matter how big or how small. I I put the same amount of energy and effort into speaking to you guys as I do speaking to BBC. So thanks oh, a lot. That's, that, that's thank, thank you, Dan. Thanks a lot. That appreciate that. <laughs> because yeah, no problem. You, you, we can actually tell um, how passionate you are by the way you're talking, and like, and you actually spoke a lot of sense as well. So hopefully our listeners do understand, do listen, and then uh, take it in the right way. And hopefully, I mean, metaphorically, <laughs> what we're selling is common sense. It's just yeah. common sense. So the pro- the, the the thing is, is that when you can get in front of the right people. They usually get it. They yeah. get it. But what, what I'm saying is that the federations, they're just not set up to activate things. Yeah. They're just not. So anyway, we could talk forever, but have me back <laughs> and we'll go with a part two. 
Yeah, we'll definitely go for that with the past too. Um, uh, so once again, thank you for your time, Tom. Uh, it was really wonderful having you uh, on the show tonight. And thank you, Shivan. Thank you for your time. Wonderful yeah, having you as guests as well. Okay, oh. guys. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Look forward to chatting again. Surely. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thanks for listening. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.